0: Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where we give you today a lot of breaking news. Um, We've got big, big news coming on coronavirus, including a new exclusive by Cheryl Atkinson, my colleague, uh, who takes a look at the differing mortality rates that Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's chief infectious disease specialist, is giving when he's in public at those coronavirus task force briefings and the White House, and what he's telling his colleagues privately in the academic world through an academic journal article. You're going to want to hear about the gap between those two assessments. Um, in addition, uh, on the coronavirus front, we've got an extraordinary guest, Dr. Victor. Vicki Wool. She is a uh, family medicine practitioner out in Idaho, someone who trained to be a public epidemiologist. So she has been trained her whole life for the sort of pandemic outbreak that we have today. She's going to sit and just talk with us and give us simple answers to simple questions that our readers and listeners have been asking at Just the News and John Solomon Reports. Should you wear a mask? Uh, What about these anti-malarial drugs? All those questions we're going to answer, and you're going to be able to take home to your family and have a better sense of what to do. Uh, And then we have the breaking news story of the day. You remember FISA. You remember Russia. You remember Michael Horowitz back in December, the Justice Department Inspector General. Uh, wrote a scathing report saying that the FBI had failed to corroborate evidence that it submitted to get a FISA warrant against the Trump campaign back in 2016. Well, as I predicted on this very show and on Sean Hannity's show recently, the IG has gone and taking a look at other FISA warrants uh, in other cases. And guess what? it found the same problems. The FBI was cheating. It wasn't verifying information. It was submitting inaccurate or unsubstantiated investigation, uh, investigative evidence. We're talking about two dozen new cases they've looked at. All of them had the same type of problems. This is a big breaking story, and we're going to be right back with it. But first, we're going to go to the commercial break. When we come back, we're going to have a lot more to talk about. folks welcome back from the commercial break and so glad you're with us today a lot of breaking news let's start with just happened a few minutes ago the Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz issuing a management warning letter to FBI Director Chris Wray saying, those very problems that we found in the FISA warrant during the Russia collusion case, you remember when the FBI agents submitted the Steele dossier as verified when it wasn't. Turns out it wasn't only verified, it had been debunked and and had been uh, found to be uncorroborated in almost all of its allegations. In fact, uh, you may remember that Christopher Steele's own source disowned much of the information attributed to him. Well, those problems, the failure of the FBI to verify information before submitting a FISA warrant that was marked verified, it didn't just happen in the Russia case. It's happened in many other cases. The Inspector General Horowitz says his team interviewed 20 uh, or uh, reviewed 29 cases around the country where FISAs were used for counterintelligence, counterterrorism cases, investigations, you know, bad guys that people were pursuing, they found the same endemic problems. Information was inaccurate. Information that was submitted as verified was unsubstantiated. The FBI didn't have any files to back up many of the claims that they had put in these um, very, very serious FISA warrants. It's one of the most important tools we have to catch spies and terrorists. But if we're cheating, we're harming American civil liberties. And it turns out in this case, the uh, Inspector General had some pretty harsh words to uh, say to the FBI and to Chris Ray basically saying the protective system they created it's called the woods procedures. you're supposed to review everything market verified, then submit it to the court. Uh, the uh, Horowitz says that process is simply not working and here's a really important uh, couple of quotes. Let me read these quotes to you directly from the report. As a result of our audit work to date, and as described below, we do not have confidence that the FBI has executed its Woods procedures, as Protective Civil Liberties measures, in compliance with FBI policy. We believe that a deficiency in the FBI's efforts to support the factual statements in FISA applications through its Woods procedures undermines the FBI's ability to achieve a scrupulously accurate standard for its FISA applications, in other words, in plain speak, the FBI has been submitting inaccurate, unsubstantiated FISA applications, not just against the Trump campaign in the Russia case, but around the country in other cases. This is a devastating warning sign for the FBI. This is basic stuff, the things that agents are required to do in an honor system that only protects civil liberties if the FBI follows its rules. If not, innocent people like Carter Page could get caught in a surveillance warrant that they don't deserve to be targeted for. And we have courts and judges making erroneous decisions based on erroneous information. This is a big and important story. Uh, We're going to keep following it over the next few days. I suspect this is the beginning of a larger avalanche of information about how the FBI does its job and what rules it has not been following. Very, very important investigation, very, very important findings, not only for those of us who followed the Russia case from the beginning, but for all of us in America who care about the Constitution, who care about the rule of law, who care about ensuring that when we exercise these awesome powers, like a FISA warrant, a surveillance operation, that American civil liberties are protected. We're going to keep you up to date at this story at Just the News. You can see the breaking news on the website right now. Uh, But check back over the next few days. I'm certain there's going to be more developments. And speaking of developments, there's so much going on in the coronavirus pandemic. Yes, we're all locked up in our homes. I'm thankful you're listening and also supporting our advertisers. But um, as we're going through this process here today, uh, we're learning a lot about the sort of uncertain science of predicting how this pandemic is going to play out. And my good colleague, uh, Cheryl Atkinson, one of the best journalists in all of the world, uh, has a really important story today. It takes a look at two statements that, uh, or two predictions, that Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of NIAD, the Infectious Disease Specialist uh, of America, the chief expert that we have in our government for things like pandemics and outbreaks and viral uh, uh, outrage or viral um, episodes, He, as you know, has made some pretty bold predictions on TV. In fact, uh, over the last couple of days, he said he thinks between 100,000 and 200,000 people may die in this pandemic. That's pretty large. Uh, He also has said uh, both before Congress under oath and uh, in uh, various television appearances that he thinks the coronavirus, COVID-19, is 10 times or more deadly than the uh, traditional uh, flu, seasonal flu that we get uh, he may be right about those things, but what uh, Cheryl found out is that in an academic article, you know one that's reserved for his learned colleagues in the in the disease specialty world, he came up with a much more conservative estimate in fact i'm going to read you what he just wrote, what was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine, very prestigious medical journal. This was published on march 26. It looks like it was written a month earlier because there's some lead time on these articles. But here's what Dr. Fauci said when talking to his colleagues through the journal. The case fatality rate may be considerably less than 1%, Fauci wrote. This suggests that the overall clinical consequences of COVID-19 may ultimately be more akin to those of a severe seasonal influenza, approximately 0.1% fatality rate, or a pandemic influenza similar to those in 57 and 68, so a half century ago. So in two set different settings, one an academic article, the other uh, the public stage of the daily coronavirus briefings and congressional testimony, Dr. Fauci has sort of two scenarios out there. One conservative, one tenth of one percent. That would be like a normal bad seasonal flu, a number of people dying or percentage of people dying who are infected. But in the public Realm. outside that academic article he's talking about 1% or 10 times the ordinary number and that could you know play out to 100,000 200,000 deaths We don't know which one of these two predictions are correct. We tried to reach Dr. Fauci, we tried to reach some of his assistants. They're too busy to talk right now, they said. But uh, somewhere between these two polar points, the conservative viewpoint that he offers in the New England Journal of Medicine, and the more dire consequences uh, on television, there's going to be uh, the likely uh, final mortality rate, and it's going to depend on a lot of things. How many people ultimately had the virus that we didn't know because they didn't get tested? What is the projection of that? And uh, what happens over the next uh, through two to three weeks? Do we flatten the curve, as they call it, in slowing down cases and severe infections and deaths? Uh, this history is still to be written, and it'll be fun to go back and look back. Actually, not fun, important to go back and look at Dr. Fauci's varying assessments and see which one of these was correct. Was it the New England Journal of Medicine model, where he says it's just above a normal uh, uh, bad flu season, or is it the more dire 10x the normal flu season that he gave before Congress and on television and at these briefings? We don't know. He doesn't know. We're going to have to wait and see. But I think it's an important piece of journalism that Cheryl did today in being able to point out that there are uh, these differing uh, models. And quite frankly, In the beginning of this coronavirus epidemic, nobody really knows how it's going to play out. There's so many unknowns yet, and that's why the best uh, policy we have is to do the social distancing, follow the rules that President Trump and Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and other specialists have, and let them learn and then adapt as we get more clear data. I think early on, there were a lot of guesses, and now hopefully there'll be a lot more uh, firm assessments based on data as we get a better grip on this disease as it rolls across our country. It's a serious thing. No one should downplay it. No one should take any unnecessary risks. Pay attention to what the president, and Congress, and these medical specialists are saying. But keep in mind what you heard at the beginning and what you hear at the end may be very different as we get the data levels and the data assessments that were unavailable when this pandemic first broke out. Very important. Uh, Things to do. And before we go to a commercial break, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about COVID 19 and coronavirus a whole lot more. With a fantastic doctor out in Idaho, she was trained as an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist for public policy. She's now a family medicine practitioner. She's on the front lines, and she's going to treat you like you're her patient, and she's going to answer some of our questions. Should we wear a mask? Uh, Should we go out? Is social distancing working? What about this chloroquine and other medicines that are out there? Uh, we're going to get through all of that with Dr. Vicky Wool, who's just a fantastic person, fantastic interview, a very learned, frontline doctor. But before we do, I've got one more little thing to do, because I know we often uh, laugh and scoff at the media. I believe journalism is still very important, uh, and we want to make sure that we get it right. But one person who's been having a hard time lately getting her predictions right is MSNBC's primetime anchor, their number one show, Rachel Maddow. Uh, Over the last few months, she's had a pretty rough patch of time where not only people, not conservatives, who've always disliked Rachel Maddow's um, liberal liberal, um, approach to things, but even the left of America has begun to attack Rachel Maddow for exaggerating or overestimating or uh, pushing projections, predictions, Storylines that turned out to be false. And so here's one that happened just the other day. Rachel Maddow uh, really challenged the president when he said that two U.S. naval ships would be quickly on the LA and New York ports. She said she didn't believe it. And then the ship showed up. That one has led to a lot of criticism, particularly on the Republican side, saying this is a prediction she had wrong and she shouldn't have doubted the president until she had her facts. But let's go backwards in time. If you go to 2017, Rachel Maddow had a big scoop she was promoting, claiming she had Donald Trump's tax returns. It turns out it was anything but his tax returns. It was a single page or a small document that didn't really give us much scope beyond what we already knew many years before. She took a lot of criticism on the left for hyping a scoop that wasn't. And then, uh, as you all know, in December, when the inspector general report, Michael Horowitz, we just talked about him, when his report came out and it put a stake through the heart of the Steele dossier saying there was a spreadsheet, just like I reported, that went through all of the facts in the the Steele dossier, and most of them were either wrong, never substantiated, or internet rumor, not not valuable intelligence. When that came out, many people, including the Washington Post media critic Eric Wemple, uh, really went after uh, Rachel Maddow for her two years of incessant insisting that the Steele dossier was credible, that its information was reliable, that big things were going to come of it in the Russia case. As it had turned out, the Steele dossier wasn't reliable at all. In fact, it was garbage intelligence, as many people have called it. And Rachel Maddow's predictions, prog- uh, prognostications really misled her audience. And that's what the Washington Post held her to account for. So keep an eye on this. We, we at Just the News are trying to do a good job of policing bias and inappropriate or inaccurate information in media so to help you sort through all of this. We hope that's helpful. Uh, we're not picking on Rachel Maddle just because of her point of view. We're picking on her because her track record on predictions lately hasn't been as good as it should be for someone who sits in such a powerful ankle chair. All right, when we come back, Dr. Vicky Wool is going to be here. We're going to learn a lot about coronavirus. Not the big picture scientific stuff, but practical things on the front lines you can do to protect yourself and your family and your loved ones and your friends. We'll be back right after this commercial break.
1: Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply.
2: Okay, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, I have a very special guest. Dr. Vicki Wool is with us. She's a family medicine practitioner out in Idaho and somebody who studied for a good part of her life to be an epidemiologist. So she has a tremendous amount of understanding about outbreaks, pandemics, uh, infectious diseases. And she's on the front lines now, treating everyday patients in Idaho. So, Doctor, welcome to our show. Well, thank you so much, John. It's an honor to be here. And and for us to have you here. So we get lots of questions that John Solomon reports and just the news of people just trying to understand on the front lines of this pandemic as it moves across the country, what should they do? What is fact? What is fiction? So I was hoping we could walk you through a few of the uh, questions that our readers and our listeners have had and, and see if you can give us your best answers. You bet. All right. So the first one that comes up almost all the time is, uh, what are the best ways to keep myself and my family and my loved ones from contracting the virus? What advice are you giving your patients?
1: Uh, It's a wonderful question. Can I start and rewind it just a little bit to let you know what the natural history of the disease is?
2: We would love that.
1: I think this is important to understand because if you know how it's Spread, then you can know what measures uh, to take. So this is a, the coronavirus is a very, very infectious virus. This particular one is has a stealth mode, meaning that it's just sneaky. And um, so patients generally acquire this virus through respiratory spread, even though it was highly popularized to say that it was droplet or only droplet, um, that's a little bit um narrow in the way that it can spread. So it's also uh people can develop some diarrhea and so you can find it in uh toilets, especially the toilets that flush and spray um droplets right. up into the air. Uh it comes out in urine, so it can be uh again um Transmitted that way. Uh, so we've got respiratory, we've got GI and diarrhea and urine, uro, uh, genital. Um, and then it can land, the virus can land on surfaces and it's pretty hardy. In fact, the Princess, uh, cruise line. They went back in about 17 days later and actually were able to retrieve virus on circuses after 17 wow. days. So I think it's a little bit hardier than we know. So once somebody is um, exposed, the virus stealth kind of comes in, infects uh, respiratory epithelium, which is the tissue that lines um, maybe the back of your nose as well as um, in your lungs and it just starts to uh, fester there and um, grow and it it it, you so many people are asymptomatic meaning it's this isn't a prodrome uh, stage where maybe you feel fine you don't know that you're infected but you're actually shedding uh, larger and larger amounts of virus and um, So when you do, when the body kind of gets overwhelmed with the amount of virus, then you start having some symptoms. And so early symptoms have been reported like scratches, throat, um, a little bit of diarrhea. I think 9% had diarrhea. There's, um, you know, maybe chest heaviness, this dry kind of cough. And then when things kind of get going, you develop a fever and it can go high to 102, 103. And you can start having some difficulty breathing where you actually are, there's so much virus in your lungs that you're starting to have reactions in your lungs, which uh, manifest in the form of a mild pneumonia. So I've already had patients that have had um, an interference with the capacity of the lungs to aerate or oxygenate the body. Um, and, uh, you, because we'll check a pulse ox and maybe I'll walk them in that and we actually desaturate their oxygen. So this right here is really where we want to get the major portion of the treatment. Um, we want to get treat early treatment on board, uh, which we can go into this later, but this seems to be a step that is blocked nationally, um, much to a lot of physicians that I'm working with. Um, disdain. We're just not really happy about this at all. So as this progresses, then um, the virus fills up uh, your lungs with this substance and inflammation, and there's a cascade of um, chemicals that work to um, just really um, uh, augment the body's reaction. So the body starts fighting this and, um, and then you get into a severe pneumonia. And when you are severely, um, hypoxic, meaning the oxygen is lower in your lungs, you get really symptomatic. I, patients are coughing and they don't stop coughing and they are gasping for breath. And oftentimes that's when they're headed to the hospital, um, and we, once in the hospital, there's a tendency to put people on respirators um, early because we know the clinical course of this is kind of it goes downhill. So, but, so after the severe pneumonia, you start getting the respiratory insufficiency. There can be an overreaction of the body, and which creates what is called ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome that can lead into sepsis, which is, you know, kind of now fulminate. You have multi organs in the body shutting down. You go into a shock and then you succumb and die. So um, the, the you know, the wave of these infections um, are you know, at the tip of the wave is when we we want this early treatment on board. This hydroxychloroquine, which is, um, it's not a, you know, we're in we're in a war for our life right now, and I, I'd like to really say that. So there isn't some magic bullet that's going to make all of this go away. We have to work really hard, and we, and we need to work responsibly. Um, so what you're seeing is. The numbers that you're seeing over the news and in international studies is that these patients, when they're admitted to the hospital, they're already severely compromised. Uh, So, yes. So what can you do at home? You know, and I think this is where I think um, I have to kind of raise my eyebrows a little bit to some of the recommendations that have been uh, provided by uh, the governmental systems, Um, even the WHO and the CDC, um, to really say that people don't need a mask, um, in my personal opinion, is irresponsible. You know, I think you're most, uh, you know, humble person knows how to, you know, pretty much put on a mask or they can ask somebody and not do it um, wrong. And, you know, the evidence of this is take a look at any photo that comes out of Taiwan or China yeah, all or, masks. you know, um, Japan. Everybody, everybody's got a mask on. Every single person all the time. They are making masks, which is what I think we need to do in this country. I, we've got a lot of talented people that could just have, you know, their sewing machines going and, and creating these masks and kind of a do it yourself type project and really supply these. And besides that, then you just throw them in the washing machine. And are they 100%? No. Yeah. But it's better
2: So in your mind, that, that early recommendation to avoid masks was maybe a bad call. And it sounds like the CDC is moving towards changing that. As a, a frontline doctor, you think we should have stuck with the masks all along, right?
1: I do. Well, I just told you how it spread. It spread, you know, your coughing or your well, I don't know about how much comes out in a sneeze, but definitely coughing. And nobody's really talking about the public toilets. You know, how they automatically go off and all that, you know, if you've got a little bit of diarrhea, all that viral particles spread up into droplets and is on, you know, is in the right? bathroom. Yeah.
2: So if you're at home and you're just around, uh, everyone seems healthy, you don't have to be wearing a mask in your home. But if you head out, your recommendation is to put that mask on.
1: Absolutely. And to wear it, you could wear gloves depending on your circumstance, you know, you could, because what the gloves remind you to go wash your hands the gloves remind you not to touch your face and so many times what we do is we um the virus will be on a surface like i told you about the ship you know and so what you do is you put your hand down because you're grabbing a piece of paper or something and then you touch your nose or then you touch your eye and you've basically taken a viral particle or viral particles and you've inoculated them into your eyes or your nose and there you go you get to you you're exposed now
2: now one of the questions a lot of people ask is uh some people will get just a very mild symptom, and then a few uh, days later, they're fine, and then other people go down to a progression of increasingly more severe symptoms until they get to the severe pneumonia. Why does this uh, virus attack people differently, and what are we learning about the vulnerabilities of people by age
1: group? So there really has been, um, it, there's been some interesting uh, studies that are out there, um, the physician in New York had looked at 700 patients and he tried to, he stratified the 700 patients based on risk. And so, you know, what we kind of right now know of a lower risk group is if you're healthy and under 60 years of age, uh, but you don't have any, you know, preexisting conditions such as diabetes and um, asthma or pu- chronic pulmonary lung disease. Uh, And so those generally, if you get exposed, the body seems to take them in stride and you get better. That's about what we've seen internationally and nationally, about 80 percent or 81 percent. I think I saw it in some place. But that leaves the other 20 percent of people that get sick that are immunocompromised that are over 60 or 65, they have shortness of breath and their immune system is has been or is um, probably not the best that it could be. And there's some dietary factors we could talk about later um, and medications that put you at a little bit of a higher risk. These are the folks that we want to aggressively treat. Now, with all that said, I can tell you that I believe it was Italy that I saw 20 to 40% of their ho- admitted hospitalizations, meaning they had severe pneumonia or worse, were actually in that 20 to 40 range. Change that. I'm sorry, 40 percent of their hospitalizations were in that 20 to 40 year old right. range. So I can't I can't give you, that statistic that people want to hear that, you know, Hey, I'm under 50. So I'm, right. I'm free and clear. Let's go have a party and let's all get sick. So
2: there, there are some anomalies here.
1: Yes, there are. Yes, there are. And, and this is uncharted water. And as um, the studies come out from France and China and um uh, Italy has been a great source of data, and I think Korea has been too. And even now, our own folks, what are frontline in New York and um, and other places, uh, the frontline workers are are kind of um, agreeing with wh- what's, what's out there in terms of what we feel is happening.
2: The um, social distancing, obviously, that's a, a new term that we've all come to uh, grow to know whether we like it or not. Um, keeping people away from each other, particularly in large environments, that does seem to have an effect in slowing this virus's spread, correct? Yes, it does. And within your own home, let's say there's five of you and one of you is sick, uh, how do you social isolate and what's the best practice if one member looks like they have COVID and the others don't?
1: Well, you know, interestingly, this just happened. Uh, this just happened to um, a dear friend of mine and his wife. Now, this this gentleman has a history of asthma. His wife actually has cystic fibrosis, which is a very severe uh, congenital lung disease, um, where many people die before they're even 25. But she, she's in her 50s. He's in his 50s. Well, they're a late teen daughter came home and was positive. And so she was isolated to her room and they would exchange food on right in front of her door and she didn't come out. She was actually told by a nurse that um, on this particular day, and it had been day 14, that she was no longer shedding virus. Now she had never taken hydroxychloroquine. She, there wasn't anything else. And I um, this this was very concerning to me so I mean even household isolations, the viral shedding can take Weeks, and I don't have an exact date for you right now. I could research that, but the viral shedding without any kind of interference with, like hydroxychloroquine, um, and I keep coming back to that is because it shows the most promise. There are three different mechanisms of action to how it works, and uh, decreasing viral shedding is one of them. And decreasing, you know, the the body's overreaction and this what we call a cytokine cascade, um, which is the body's overreaction, it decreases that. And so, and it also decreases the amount of virus that gets into your own cells. So your body creates good antibodies, um, which are protein molecules that, are, that fight the infection. So I hope that helped answer. I don't, if somebody's sick in the same home and there are high risk family members, I mean, oh my gosh, for me, it's a no brainer. You've got to at least try the hydroxychloroquine to um, to weather all of this out.
2: So let's talk about that. That's the anti malarial drug. We've done a lot of reporting in just the news on this and was uh, really early in the wave and understanding that South Korea, France, and other countries were seeing progress in this. And the reason they were seeing progress was you could go back to 2003 and the SARS epidemic, and there were, there were, uh, interesting studies then, and people raising their hand saying this anti-malarial drug, which has been around since the 1940s, seems to work when it's applied to a coronavirus like SARS or MERS or now COVID-19. So there's a debate, right? There's a, those in the science community said, well, until we have lots of studies, you shouldn't do it. But doctors like yourself already believe, well, first, you know the drug, you've been using it for lupus patients and malaria uh, for years you feel like it's a good interdiction now to introduce it if you have someone getting sick in the family and you have high-risk members. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely, because what we're seeing, John, is that um, this is a tidal wave coming at us. You know, uh, if you, I mean, (laughs) based on all the other international countries that are ahead of us by a month or two, uh, and we have to stop the number of cases that are actually progressing to severe pneumonia Um, and being hospitalized and it's, it's being shown. And even this uh, physician in New York has showed this, you know, of his 200 patients that were stratified for high risk and he treated them early aggressively with hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and actually also zinc, you know, he only, of those 200 patients, he had six people that were really sick and nobody died. So, um, so two people developed ARDS, which is an acute respiratory distress, and four people right. developed pneumonia. But nobody died in his group, and he's continuing the study. So, this is his name, by the way, is uh, Dr. Vladimir Zolenko, um, out of New York. So, and he's been he's been on uh, multiple TV, right? podcasts yeah. since then. So, we've got good enough. I mean, we've got quite a bit of. Yes, some of it's anecdotal, but there are some other studies. It's the, the data is so encouraging that the entire country of India has put a prophylaxis on their healthcare workers. They say, if you're a healthcare worker, we want you to prophylax with hydroxychloroquine and, or if you are an immediate family member of a COVID positive um, patient, we want you on prophylaxis. So Taiwan attributes their um, part of their success in that they epidemiologically, first of all, everybody's wearing a mask. Second of all, epidemiologically, they go after the cases and um, they go after the cases very uh, uh, closely in the family members and anybody who was exposed. So I, I think that's what is lacking. I think there's misinformation that's coming out from the highest levels Um, And, and I mean, I I say that uh, probably not guardedly because it's, to some of us, the recommendations are just outright wrong.
2: Well, if they flip-flop on the uh, face masks, that'll be just one of the many examples of where the early uh, information that the so-called experts in Washington gave us would would have been wrong. And it sounds like they are going to flip-flop on those masks over the next uh, 24, 48 hours. That's what we're hearing from from officials. the the prophylactic or early intervention treatment. If you give someone one of these anti-malarial drugs, chloroquine is a little more stronger. Hydroxychloroquine is a little safer, uh, lower dose. Uh, if you're not symptomatic, uh, and someone should, should someone take it once every ten days, once every five days, or not until they get symptoms?
1: Uh, well, good question. The physicians that I'm worry that I'm working with really. Um, we we kind of come up with take a pill today take a pill tomorrow and then once a week until the epi- until the pandemic is over that just seems to be you know um you know uh one of the possibilities now that's not treatment that's more like you're high risk so who's high risk my goodness, everybody who's on the front line dealing with all these sick patients, this disease right. is taking down physicians and nurses left and right in all the hospital systems, which makes to another big question. Why are the hospital administrators not saying you need all these personal precautions to protect you? On the contrary, they're said if you know if there are some institutions that are saying if you wear a mask or you know, you're you're gonna be written up. I it, it, it's ridiculous to me so um health workers number one we need to keep them healthy number two you know the police goodness the three military uh if you know if this takes our military down we've got you know ships that are out and they the men are have you know dedicated their their service to the united states and this virus is on board it, it, it close the qu- close quarters are such that you know everybody will end up getting it because this, again, this is a really stealth virus. So healthcare workers and the police, military, you know, how about nursing home people? How about our elders that are, you right. know, um, you know, uh, perhaps there's somebody in there in, and that's been positive. You know, I recently um, have heard of a TSA agent who is actually positive. So, you know, the, the folks that are frontline with the public, I believe, um, are the higher risk groups. And I would highly suggest that they are on prophylaxis. This is a cheap medication. And there's another thing, you know, they said, oh, well, we don't have enough. You know what? That's not true. Um, And I say that because it was once the information got out about hydroxychloroquine, the supply chain dried up in three days. Absolutely dried up. I watched it.
2: So why is that?
1: Well, Um, First, there was the narrative that doctors were um, writing themselves prescriptions and hoarding it, which is, I'm sorry, it's a crock. Um, What we were trying to do, those of us that that purchased some, is... Find out how we're going to be able to get the medication to the patient. this is a long standing this is a long standing issue with us trying to get um, medications and appropriately, and we could go on for hours about how our medical profession has been impacted in the last ten to fifteen years um, so Why is that? Well, they said, oh, no, no, we don't have any stockpile. Well, the FDA just came out and said, yeah, we've got a stockpile. And now we're going to only give the medication to the hospital. And like I just got done explaining, the hospitals are the end result. You're going there with a really high chance of not walking out. Or you've got chronic lung problems if you do live.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the the real intervention point in your mind is to is to get these uh, treatments into people when their mild symptoms are starting or when they're in a high risk pool and exposed to someone that already has the virus. Yes. Now we've heard a lot about um, mortality rates and death estimates and huge numbers, small numbers. Um, based on what you're seeing, uh, this seems to be a uh, a virus that is a, a lot more deadly than and contagious than ones that we've dealt with in the past. Is that correct?
1: Yes, and I'd like to expand on that for a second. So early on, our authorities were saying, oh, this is no worse than the flu. And I have a lot of colleagues that kind of came back with that, too. And it's Mm -hmm. just too early in the game to actually say that. We know that the case fatality rate, meaning the number of people that die that are infected with influenza, is 0.1%. So that's one person out of a thousand actually dies that gets influenza. And I have not distinguished whether or not that's influenza A or influenza B. Now we're looking at, and even data from South Korea states that that their case fatality rate is uh, 1%. So that 1% is actually 10 times higher than the influenza and if that how that translates out is depends on how many people get sick. So if we're looking at eighty percent of the United States population getting sick, which is if we don't do anything, if we do not intervene, that adds up to be a lot of people.
2: Yeah, no, it's a scary number even to start to calculate. So right now, uh, the FDA over the weekend uh, went ahead with the recommendation that uh, uh, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine can be used, although as you appropriately noted, it seems to be limited to hospitals right now. What are the three things as a frontline doctor you'd like to see the government do in the next week to to get a better grip on where we're headed?
1: Well, John, I just spent the entire weekend coming up with a letter with other physicians that are working in this healthcare care coalition um, to President Trump and the uh, COVID task force to l- release us, let our hand I mean untie our hands. There have been um, and I don't understand this. I don't understand that there are state governors, that have put the pressure on the state board of pharmacies. And I'm guessing this is the chain of command, but they put the pressure on the state board of pharmacies who have then put the pressure on the individual pharmacists, first the big chains and then the independent pharmacists to say, well, don't you give that doctor any hydroxychloroquine unless you've got a positive, you know, unless you've got a positive diagnosis or unless you're, you know, you've got good diagnostic criteria Well, there's some problems with that because the pharmacists are not dealing with the patient directly on. They don't know my people. They don't know the people that I see. They don't know their history. They don't know their symptoms. They don't know clinically what's going on. And so when I write for, you know, oh, my gosh, this gentleman has... You know, severe COPD, and if he gets exposed, he's going to expire. There's just no two ways about it. They, he needs. He's high risk. I'd like to get him on at least a pill a week, you know, for for some benefit. Um, I, you know, that that isn't possible right now. So I would very much like um, the authorities to release this medication, which is incredibly cheap, um, and is being produced. By from what I understand, six different country, companies, you know, worldwide, um, to uh, for, for more for prevention and uh, release us to allow to um, you know treat high risk folks. And I think every physician and nurse and you know hospital employee and clinic employee needs to be on it. Um, um, I, I'll tell you, I'm on it. I can tell you, my staff is on it. I I am. I'm pretty darn sure that Governor Cuomo is on it um, of New York. Um, So, anyway.
2: um, And do you see the tide changing now? Uh, Just the fact that the FDA made this move over the weekend, do you expect with this letter that you're working on with other doctors to the president that you'll continue to get the latitude to get treatment decisions back at the doctor's level as opposed to a national level?
1: Yeah, I would really sincerely hope that, John. What I believe the narrative is going to turn out to be is that there isn't enough and we can't get this made. And you don't believe that? No, I don't believe that for a minute. No, in fact, if we could, I, I know I spoke with um, um, a very uh, a wonderful uh, physician in Texas who stated there's a company in Texas, they grow the plant. If we could get the API, which are the, like the essential ingredients, they could have up to 1 billion hydroxychloroquine made by the end of the year. Wow. So, um, no, we've got incredible potential for making this. And my understanding is that it's so easy to make. You could make it in a garage. But that's not to say you go out and drink fish tank cleaner. Yeah, we don't want to encourage people to do that. I mean, (laughs) hello.
2: Yeah, no, uh, that was one of the silly episodes and also mishandled by the media. Now, this uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, it does have some side effects. Which type of patients do you have to monitor more closely if they're taking a prophylactic or intervention version of the drug?
1: Yes. Thank you, John. Um, So, chloroquine does have a a little bit of a higher side effect profile. When something is hydroxylated, it usually is a more active ingredient or more active form, and it has lesser side effects. That's why you're also going to see in the media, the media is shifting now and saying, Oh, this is chloroquine, chloroquine, chloroquine. Well, we're saying hydroxychloroquine because it has even a better side effect profile. And like you already stated, patients have been on this for years, taking it twice a day for years and years and years for rheumatoid arthritis and also um, lupus, you know, some of the uh, autoimmune diseases. So um, the side effect profile, I mean, it's, this is why it really needs to be done with a patient's primary care physician, somebody that knows them. This patient-physician relationship is so important. You just can't, you know, kind of uh, cookie-cutter all of this. But I would look twice at somebody who has any cardiac arrhythmia or any kind of a, a birth, um, like congenital Q- prolonged QT syndrome, which means the, the heart and its electrical impulse takes a little bit longer to repolarize. And so what happens with this, with, with drugs can actually have an additive effect of making that repolarization longer. And then you can have some arrhythmias. Um, So it is, I mean, it's nothing is without risk. We always have to, we always have to weigh risks and benefits. But if you look at what's your risk of dying, it's, Considerably high, or being put on a ventilator versus, you know, the potential risk, you know, uh, that, that's there. I mean, it just is. There's risk in ibuprofen. So, um, so anyway, um, so I would look at a prolonged QT. There is a congenital um, that's called a glucose six phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, and that's genetic, and many people. Um, well, it's not that common, first of all, but it it does happen in the population. You wouldn't want to take the medication if you had that. Um, so those are probably two of the highest or any kind of allergy or any kind of hypersensitivity to the components. That would be a contraindicated. Right. Um, but black box labels, there really aren't any that I'm um, aware of. These are concerns, though.
2: As you look at it, it seems as though you would be comfortable if if the majority of Americans were taking this occasionally to uh, ward off the spread of the virus. Uh, Do you think we can get to that level of distribution and prophylactic treatment in time?
1: We're kind of hitting a critical wave as this comes down. And I think if you watch what's happening in New York, you'll see that um, we're just at the very beginning of this epidemic. Uh, let me share with you a little number that I did. Um, So as of yesterday, we had 164,000 cases in the United States and 3,165 deaths. If you look at our population being 328 million people and if, big if, if we need 80% of the people infected to have immunity against this, then uh, that, that's 262 million people being um, infected. The, the statistics are that between 10 and 20% of those people are hospitalized, and 2% will go to be on a ventilator, and 1% will end up at the death rate. At that 1% death rate, which very well could be higher than this, we just don't know yet, then we have only hit 0.06% of what we need for herd immunity. And we have only hit 0.1% of all the deaths that there could possibly be at the lowest level that we are guesstimating. Does that make sense? We got a long way to go, in other words
2: it's a very bleak picture and it means we're in for a long haul here. The um uh, Dr. I can't thank you enough. You've really covered some remarkable ground. In the absence of, I just want to ask one last question cuz it comes up. If we don't uh, get to a point where hydroxychloroquine is out, uh what are our fallback defenses for doctors like you? What are you going to do to keep patients uh as healthy as you can in the midst of this spread?
1: Uh, okay. Well, well, we've mentioned the the distancing, the wearing the mask, the washing the hands. Um, I think we need to get our nutrition a little bit in order. There are some vitamins that are good for the immune system, um, the vitamin C uh, and, you know, um, a gram to two a day, vitamin D, keeping up on your vitamin C levels, your vitamin D levels. I I hesitate to give an actual amount. Um, I can tell you anecdotally what people are doing, but keeping up on your amounts of your good multivitamin, maybe some extra vitamin C. Um, A daily vitamin D3 is probably um, pretty good. If you look at respiratory infections, they get really bad above the 37th parallel, and that's it it kind of correlates with our vitamin D decreasing as the sun kind of goes away. So um, it looks to be more positive with vitamin D Um, and then zinc. Zinc has been um, shown to be, uh, to help limit the amount of virus that gets into the cells. Um, And we are, we have a tendency to be deficient. And so if you have, Maybe you don't taste things the way that you used to or you don't smell things the way that you used to. It's possible that you're a little vitamin uh, zinc deficient. So, um, you know, changes in our diet. And I would probably actually not take ibuprofen if you have a, 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 a um, fever because the fever is really protective um, and it's uncomfortable. You know, nobody likes to see it or experience 103 or even 104. Um, and there are other things that can be done to, but but it's a mechanism of defense that your body has. Um, so they, they have noticed that, uh, they did some autopsies on folks that had died from, um, uh, the COVID and everybody had ibuprofen on board and so it's like well is it the ibuprofen or is it the fact that it was used as an antipyretic or something to bring down a fever and the fever wasn't allowed to do its job so that's that's a big question mark right now
2: and then what about uh, acetaminophen Tylenol is that a better uh, intervener for um, a fever
1: well that goes with exactly what I said are we trying to decrease the fever which could actually be a protective mechanism I mean, then I say question mark, um, or um, or is it the actual chemical formulation of uh, acetaminophen versus ibuprofen? I don't know the answer to that.
2: Interesting. Yeah, that's something that we'll have to study more. Well, Dr. Wall, I can't thank you enough for all of your expertise and the time you spent with us today. I think our listeners learned an awful lot. And I hope that we can have you back on the show in a few weeks as we learn more and as we track this incredible pandemic as it spreads across our country. Your your insights have just been invaluable.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity, and um, God bless America.
2: You stay safe. We're lucky to have you on the front lines. Thank you, John. All right. God bless. We'll talk to you soon. All right, folks, we'll be back after the commercial break to wrap up today's podcast. Stay tuned.
0: All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you appreciated the doctor's great insights on how to get through this COVID-19 outbreak and how we're all going to get through it step by step with lots of good advice and following instruction. Also, uh, we can't forget about that Russia case and the continuing problems that the FBI has in complying with the law and complying with its Woods procedures and in protecting our civil liberties. That's a serious story, an important cancer that also needs to be addressed in this country. Uh, We'll be back on Thursday with another full edition of John Solomon Reports. Until then, be safe, be healthy, enjoy your family, and most of all, stay tuned. Take care.